Hello and welcome to Talking Intellectual History. My name is Dr Paul Sagar and I'm a lecturer in political theory at King's College London. Today I'm speaking to Glory Liu, who's postdoctoral research fellow at the Political Theory Project at Brown University, but will soon be taking up a position as college fellow in social studies at Harvard University. Hi, Glory. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Today, Gloria and I are going to be having a conversation uh, to explore one of the figures that we're both particularly interested in, and that's Adam Smith. I've spent the last three or four years working on Smith's moral and political theory, and Gloria has spent even longer working on the reception of Smith's ideas. And it's in particular the reception of Smith that we want to talk about today. A little bit of context here is likely to be helpful. Most people hard as it is for us intellectual historians to admit this, don't actually know who Smith is. Often when I'm talking to people in my day-to-day -day life and they ask what I work on, I say, well, I work on Adam Smith. And they say, and who's that? Luckily, because I live in the UK, I can get a £20 note out of my pocket. Well, sometimes I can. If, if I happen to have one, I get my note out of my pocket. And I say, it's this guy. It's the guy on the £20 note. And that, you know, usually gets us through. For those people who have heard of Smith, who aren't specialists, they usually know him as the person who invented economics. That enough is usually uh, something that makes intellectual historians like myself and Glory cringe a little bit because we think that's far too reductive. But that's usually what most people know him for, the man who invented economics. But what comes along with that is that Smith is usually known as a thinker of the political right. And this, as Glory's work in particular has shown, is by no means an accident. It has a lot to do with the reappropriations of Smith's thought in the mid-20th century. But what's interesting is that for specialist scholars in the field, such as indeed myself, the view of Smith as allied to a free market in particular version of, of the modern political right associated with Chicago economics, with Ronald Reagan, with Margaret Thatcher, is very, very off base. And in fact, if there's one thing that all specialist myth scholars agree about today, it's that that view of Smith isn't right. For a start, we like to say he wrote a book of moral philosophy. He taught moral philosophy all his life at the University of Glasgow. Whether this guy's thought can today be mapped onto the left or the right is an ongoing and complex debate. But whatever he was, he wasn't this crude theorist of self-interest and of the unbridled automatic superiority of free markets that people today often think. But what's really interesting to me about Glory's work and that I want to speak to her about today is that she actually shows that we, the Smith scholars, also have an oversimplified understanding of the history of Smith. That actually the, the story of how Smith became the right wing Smith is itself much more complicated than a simple cynical appropriation by figures like Milton Friedman. So Glory, I'd like to bring you into the conversation at precisely this point. And perhaps you could start by telling us, why is it that, that Smith became in the 80s this figure of the free market right? And yet at the same time, it's a much more complex story than perhaps people like me have wanted to believe. Yeah, so that's a really great question and something that started me on this book project, which has now lasted for well over five years and um, may never leave. But um what you say about Smith being this kind of icon of the new right in the 80s, um, especially associated with figures like Milton Friedman, um, has a much more complicated story. So uh, we're used to seeing images of Milton Friedman wearing his Adam Smith tie and indeed many other advisors in the Reagan administration wearing their Adam Smith tie in the 80s. Um, and I'm just going to briefly pause and say that got picked up in headlines in the U.S. and, you know, in Time magazine and um, in 
other major media outlets, people started noticing that people who wanted to align themselves with Reagan's economics and with the kind of new conservative movement in the 80s were actively signaling that they were by wearing the Adam Smith tie. Um, but how did that even happen? Like, why did Adam Smith become the icon of that particular movement? And it is indeed, as you said, much more complicated than just somebody picking up, you know, the 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 one <laughs> portrait that they had of Adam Smith and putting it on a tie and and that's that. So um, in the 20th century, right after uh, the Great Depression, um, economists were kind of scrambling to figure out uh, what principles they could defend um, to revive liberalism. Um, and I say that with a kind of most generous use of the term liberalism, right? They were interested in defending and kind of resuscitating the principles that they believed were crucial to a free society. Now, at the time, this idea of laissez-faire liberalism, right, that the government should have absolutely no role in the economy, was, was pretty much dead, with the exception of a kind of small but growing cohort of economists that believed that actually there were principles of a free market economy that could be revived in a sensible way, that it wasn't completely laissez-faire, you know, no government whatsoever, but that, you know, the government had an active role to play, but a minimal one. And those um, economists were really clustered around what would later become known as the Chicago School. Um, and what's interesting is what they're doing with Smith is that they are really focusing on Smith as a um, early theorist of the price mechanism, that um, prices are the way we signal what buyers want to buy and what producers want to sell. And the free market was the best way in which to allocate resources efficiently and in a way that would preserve everybody's freedom economically and politically. And this idea of Smith as the author of the price mechanism and the founder of a type of economics that proved scientifically that markets were the best way to guarantee economic and political freedom becomes the cornerstone of basically an economic principle that undergirds a political ideology. Now, I wanna be very careful in distinguishing um, kind of the, the Milton Friedman version from, from like a much more complex version, right? So this is not uncontested by any means. In fact, Friedman gets a lot of flack for the amount of kind of public intellectualizing and politicizing that he does. He gets a lot of pushback from other economists, from other schools, and indeed from his colleagues at Chicago who think that he's much too, um, much too strident in his free market advocacy. So, you know, his, his predecessors, people like Jacob Viner, um, Frank Knight, and even, even somebody like Friedrich Hayek, whose views about the free market and the price mechanism were, were much more complex. And they, they, they really tried to hedge um, and say, yes, the price mechanism is what enshrines economic freedom and political freedom, but we shouldn't be too reductive in how we categorize economic freedom. It should not be the primary value of a liberal society. Indeed, if we make freedom the only normative value of, of, of a liberal society, we might be in danger of actually um, going too far. So um, all of that is to say is that uh, by the time we get to, say, the late 60s and early 70s, um, you have the ascendancy of rational choice, um, 
people like Friedman and his colleague George Stigler, they they start to turn economics much more into um, a science whose kind of legitimacy depends on whether or not um, a theory can predict. And they really see Smith as providing the principles of something that could be kind of rationally reconstructed as you know, self-interest as the basis of, of human behavior, which if we include that in our models, look at the predictive power. Um, and same thing with something like, you know, the price mechanism. I think what's really important here is that um, in order to see Smith as the kind of objective, neutral economist that gave us the scientific powers of the free market based on the price mechanism, based on this assumption of self-interest, you have to actually strip away his politics and his moral philosophy, right? So there's this active, um, uh, what do you call it? There's there's basically a, a willful, 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 sorry, <laughs> willful ignorance, if not kind of a, a deliberate stripping away um, of, of Smith's actual views on the nature of politics <laughs> and the nature of the modern state and um, other types of human motivations that just have to be, again, smoothed over, flattened, ignored um, in order to make that version of Smith work. So <laughs> that's how I would categorize this kind of complex um, version of Smith that eventually gets flattened and again, politically appropriated um, in such a way that he really starts to you know, infiltrate um, modern political culture and ideas about the free market. Fantastic. So one thing that really struck me when reading your work on, on in particular, the Chicago Smith, is the role that, in, as you mentioned, Milton Friedman plays in this. And the quite interesting position that Friedman takes vis-a-vis -vis other scholars in the Chicago School. There's a few thoughts I have here, which I find fascinating. And one is, is this the, the, the importance of Friedman himself as a figure. If you read about the history of the neoliberals, who of course yeah. are closely associated with the Chicago School, and, and someone like Philip Morawski, one of the premier scholars in neoliberalism, will tell you, his story is basically that Friedman is a fourth-rate intellectual, but a first-rate shill for power, basically, a propagandizer of ideas. Right? I mean, Morawski doesn't put it quite that bluntly, but it's pretty much the story. And when we take something like the importance of the doctrine of the invisible hand, which you've alluded to there, which is probably the idea which Smith is most famous for, um, yeah. there this, 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 this looks like there are two stories in play here. The one that, that the scholar Gavin Kennedy told, which is that up until Paul Samuelson's 1949 textbook, Economics, yeah. which is by far and away the most popular, best-selling textbook of all time, which completely mangles Smith on the invisible hand and it attributes yeah. it to him a theory <laughs> which just isn't what Smith is saying, but yeah. becomes this, this idea of free market efficiency, the market is always efficient. Mm -hmm. That's not what the invisible hand is saying, it's saying something else, but um, yeah. you get this doctrine of efficiency. But what I was striking to me by reading your work is that that idea may have been popularized amongst economists mm -hmm. through Samuelson's textbook, but it's dissemination in the public consciousness, the invisible hand as you know, the market will sort it all out, let the market do it. That really is a story about freedmen. Um, and I thought that was really, really fascinating. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So. Um... To go to your point about Samuelson and um, kind of later uh, the the economists um, Kenneth Arrow and um, Gerard Dupre and, and Frank Hahn, <laughs> I hope I haven't gotten that wrong. Um, this idea amongst economists 
specifically, you know, scientific economists in the mid 20th century, that the invisible hand really stands for, you know, the theory of general competitive equilibrium, um, that all markets can clear under specific conditions, um, you know, perfect information and everything else. Um, that That's something that, that economists are debating amongst themselves, but it's, it's pretty hard and not impossible, but it's pretty hard to kind of turn that directly into a popular political view, right? Um, that's really a kind of a scientific debate they're having amongst themselves. What Friedman does is, is take something like a scientific view of markets and what they can do and turn that into the basis of a much more popular political agenda. Um, and, and, uh, I think it's another, uh, a Beatrice Cherrier, she's another historian of, of um, economic thought. And she says something really powerful, which is that, you know, Friedman is politically and scientifically consistent. And indeed, his prior views about what, um, you know, his, his, his political ideology doesn't distort his scientific contributions by any means. He is a very accomplished scientist. He won the Nobel Prize. He was a winner of the John Bates Clark Medal. Amongst economists, he was known for his um, contributions to monetary theory, amongst other things. Um, albeit a very contrarian economist, that's not to that's not to kind of um, you know belittle his accomplishments as a scientist by any means. But by the by the time you get to kind of you know late Friedman, so to speak, you know Friedman who is actively um, working with uh, Barry Goldwater's campaign and consulting for the Nixon and Reagan administrations and creating documentaries called Free to Choose and writing Capitalism Freedom, right? That Friedman is the one whose political ideologies actually color the kinds of methods and the kinds of findings he chooses to highlight scientifically to then reinforce um, this, this new agenda that is an aggressive assault on, on government intervention in the economy. Um, in a way that that is very, very different from his predecessors, again, Frank Knight and, and Friedrich Hayek even. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating because actually the, the Hayek uh, connection and in some ways mm -hmm. actually disconnection is really fascinating here because we mentioned the the, the, uh, the invisible hand. And I think it's you know, we should put our cards on the table. And I think we both yeah. agree in reading that the invisible hand is much closer to what Hayek called the knowledge problem than it is a theory about clearing yeah. markets. It's right. about the fact that the state is always in a position of having very little information, whereas the market, I mean, Smith didn't have access to this language, but he understood this intuitively that markets are information processing machines it, they can process all of the different wants demands needs and and, and uh, supplies that the that individual um, agents can bring to the market and clear them through a price mechanism now markets can fail and get stuck in in smith's view but what the state can't do is expect to be more efficient than the market other things you know ceteris paribus that Smith definitely thought there were times when the state should get involved in the market and he's explicit about that at various points mm -hmm. but Basically, he had a kind of insight that Hayek developed into the knowledge problem, which is that the state can't do this all the time. And there's times when it's appropriate for the market to do this. And everybody will be better off if we go this way. So what's, of course, fascinating yeah. is that Hayek, who's in the generation or just before Friedman, who's working in Chicago, but in the politics department, very importantly, yeah. he wasn't in the <laughs> economics department. He. Yeah. You know, just just before the eighties, you know, in the sixties, he's writing the Constitution of Liberty, and he's pushing a vision of Smith, which is much closer to probably a more accurate reading of the Smithian texts. But already that view gets pushed out by the Friedman one, and of course Hayek himself is 
you know, is, is not the first person to interpret Smith. So we've, we've kind of started midstream here, but maybe we should kind of look to go backwards and yeah. forwards. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the prevailing views of Smith that existed even before, you know, because the Friedman interpretation is itself a revisionary interpretation. And the Hayek one is itself a revisionary interpretation. It's not like people just started uh, interpreting Smith in, in the 1970s and 80s. So what right. happened before? Right. Yeah, no, I, I think this is really helpful. I think um, I kind of muddled quite a few <laughs> constructions all in the 20th century. And then, you know, we're, we're still ending up with Milton Friedman. And, and if I can just emphasize one thing, which is that a lot of my work turns on this idea that the Smith that we have inherited, and I say we kind of to speak to, you know, like North Atlantic liberal capitalist views of um, Adam Smith, tend to rely on this reductive version of Smith as the father of free market economics. And I want to say that is a construction and it's a construction from a particular historical period. And it came with a deliberate purpose, which was um, to kind of reinvent the primacy and the kind of legitimacy of free markets as the basis of a vision of political and economic freedom, right? And that emerges really in the 70s and 80s, but it has roots in the 40s and 50s, post-depression, post-war economics. So what, what does, yeah, what do these kind of more complicated views of Smith look like, you know, maybe even before the the, the 1930s and 1940s even. Um, one thing that I've picked up on in my research, and I actually haven't written about this yet, yet but I, I probably should, is that um, the phrase the invisible hand is really quite remarkably absent from popular political discourse. It really doesn't pick up until I would say the 1930s, but that's open to revision because I haven't you know done kind of the, the full historical research. Um, and the invisible hand is really popularized as the market mechanism by both Samuelson and Friedman. But before that, whenever I've um, seen the phrase invisible hand pop up in, say, the congressional record, the, the American congressional record, there are maybe close to 100 invocations of the invisible hand, and not one of them <laughs> prior to 1948 refers to the market. In fact, they're referring to the invisible hand of God. And more often than not, they're quoting from George Washington's um, inaugural address, I think, or maybe the farewell address. They're, they're quoting from a speech from George Washington, who uses the phrase invisible hand. And, and so I think that really speaks to this idea that, that, that certain people reinvented the invisible hand to mean the market. Um, and a very specific and narrow conception of the market, not what you were talking about earlier, kind of like the market as this information dissemination mechanism, as opposed to, you know, say, government central planning. Um, what's really interesting is prior to the 1930s, there's actually this flourishing of very deep, very sophisticated Smith scholarship amongst economists and philosophers and sociologists. Um, and there's this window of time Kind of right around the turn of the century, where where people actually have these very historical readings of Smith, they're wrestling with what we now would think of as Das Adam Smith problem, right? Like trying to reconcile the apparent inconsistency between sympathy in the theory of moral sentiment and self interest in the other, and you know that problem emerges in the late nineteenth century in Germany, as you and I experts and up to our eyes in Smith scholarship know. 
But what these American economists, philosophers, and sociologists are really interested in is not proving that, you know, the Das Adam Smith problem doesn't exist or that there is a kind of fundamental consistency. They're actually really interested in recovering Smith's politics. Um, and they read Smith. I, I remember thinking this as I came across their work. I'm like, oh, they're reading Smith like Paul Sagar is reading Smith today. They're interested in how Smith thought historically. And what that means is that they were interested in seeing how Smith in the 18th century thought about morality and thought about the development of politics and institutions in a way that was very historically sensitive. And, and that I think was, is really interesting because, you know, we tend to think today, we in the 21st century think that we have all the knowledge that we need to understand kind of the fullest version of a very historical Smith based on you know, what Smith would have originally intended and thought, not what he could have foreshadowed or anticipated or could be you know, appro politically appropriated for. But, but actually, <laughs> people were doing and trying to do you know, very good historical Smith scholarship, even in the late 19th, sorry, yeah, late 19th, early 20th century. And then those readings basically got overwritten by what would later emerge in the 20th century. Um, so that's that's some of the work that that I'm working on right now in terms of, you know, what other readings existed? What other ways could this story have gone? Um, it could have gone a lot of ways. <laughs> why, why do you think it is that it was Smith that the, the Chicago people settled on um, to be this figurehead? Yeah. Um, to us, it now sort of seems inevitable, right? Of yeah. course, it must have been he invented economics and he has. Right. But, but, but the idea that he invented economics is itself a construction because uh -huh. Hume was writing an economic essays before yeah. James Stewart was writing economics at the time. Nobody was treating the wealth of nations as an economics textbook for a long time because it's clearly yeah. a polemical thousand page doorstopper about international strategy <laughs> and has, has through hundreds of pages of, of speculative history about, you know, people living in Shepherd in communities in prehistorical times it's, it's not it's simply not an economics textbook in anything like recognizable sense because the discipline of economics really can only be said to exist i think with ricardo and after ricardo so yeah. the, so it's not enough to say oh of course they appealed to adam smith because you know he was the obvious figurehead because he invented economics because that itself was a partly yeah. their construction so why smith um, do you mean why Smith like around the Chicago period or why Smith just kind of in general? Well, I suppose both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're linked. So you're absolutely right that this idea that Smith is the father of economics and the father of classical economics is a construction. And it's a construction that dates to the early 19th century. So this is also something that I discuss in my book at length. Um, you know, I've gone into archives to look at how students were taking notes in their lectures on economics in the early 19th century and, you know, in the, in this, in the late 19th century after the Civil War. And, and what I found is that even though Smith's economics basically gets, um, it becomes obsolete quite quickly, right? Um, like you said, David Ricardo, um, and then you have this kind of flourishing of American political economists writing in the mid 19th century and the late 19th century. Then you have the marginal revolution. Um, Smith's economics gets obsolete pretty quickly, but he still holds this um, presence in economics as the, the man who systematized and gave scientific value to the field. So he holds this position of intellectual authority that economics can really never get away from. Um, that's really important because as, as um, 
the field of economics, which we know began as political economy with roots in moral philosophy, slowly separates away from moral philosophy, slowly separates away from politics and becomes, you know, economic science. They go through these, um, I don't want to say revolutions, but they go through these moments of intellectual crisis where they're really trying to define the scope and objects of the field. So in the late 19th century, for example, there's this big debate about whether economics should be founded on deductive principles or inductive principles, whether it should be more historically minded or be kind of abstract and timeless, um, or whether you know it should be directed towards so social and ethical ends or not, just be kind of you know value neutral. Um, and who do they have to go toward? That that's a kind of a recognizable figure <laughs> that has intellectual authority and can actually play all sides of that debate. Adam Smith happens to be somebody that fits that, that, um, that list very, very well. So, you know, in, in moments of kind of intellectual crisis, as, as I say, um, or when there, whenever there's a fight that may not have to do with the content or substance of Smith's works, but is related to the topics and the questions that Smith was interested in, Smith is very easy to pull off the shelf and to kind of have his intellectual authority reinvented and repurposed for, for all these different moments. And I think that's what makes his legacy timeless. It's not that he himself intended to be this timeless guy, right? He, I think, um, as many scholars do, you know, Smith was writing in a very, very particular time. And like you were saying, it's this very polemical text. Um, but his subsequent readers have kind of reinvented both his views and also his intentions that have made those principles timeless. Um, so kind of to, to get back to your original question about like, well, so then why, why did Chicago, you know, glom onto Smith again? Well, there's not only a history of doing that, but um, Smith, I think, filled this deep need that Chicago had um, for providing certain scientific as well as political ideas um, for a type of liberalism that they wanted. So, you know, it, it's not so much Smith that's doing the work, but really we, we learn more about Chicago's type of liberalism that they wanted to get out of Smith um, based on this kind of common knowledge that Smith's authority um, can be very powerful, um, not only for um, understanding principles of economics, but using those principles of economics to suit a, a kind of new political and social uh, theory. I hope some of that made sense. <laughs> no, 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 it certainly, it certainly did. Um, so maybe now we, we carry on sort of closer towards the present. So as I mentioned, um, mentioned earlier, we in the sort of Smith, especially Smith scholarship, um, can often be quite sort of dismissive about the the Chicago Smith, and a lot of the more recent literature I'm thinking here, sort of the last probably since about 1998, 1999, in particular Charles Griswold's very very good, very important book, Adam Smith and the Virtues of Enlightenment. There's been a real renaissance in in historically contextualized Smith, which has a lot of the time been focused on a kind of bringing back the moral philosophy component. Mm -hmm. um, but as your, uh, some of your work, which, I, which I've read, which is hopefully going to be in, in the book that you're working on, um, you've tried to explain that, well, there's problems with this revisionist Smith, too. So why don't you quickly tell us um, what some of the main strands have been since the Chicago Smith and also what maybe some of the problems are? Yeah. So um, 
I would say starting around, you know, the same time that the Chicago Smith is reaching its apogee in 1976 or so, we get the kind of first wave of original scholarship. People like Donald Winch, um, Newt Hawkinson, our, our, you know, our beloved Istvan Hunt um, at Cambridge. Um, and then into the 90s, we have people like Charles Griswold and, and the kind of, I would say the, the, the animating feature of the early revisionist work was to really um, dispel two things, one of which was this liberal capitalist Chicago Smith, right? Smith is not a Chicago style economist, avant la lettre. But also that um, the Das Adam Smith problem was not a problem, right? That, that you in fact do need to integrate um, an understanding of Smith's moral philosophy alongside his political economy. And I think what we've seen since maybe 1999 or so is um, much more emphasis on Smith's identity as a moral philosopher, um, much more so than his political economy. So rather than this kind of like side by side, we have to understand Smith's moral philosophy and political economy. It's more we have to understand his moral philosophy as the foundation for his political economy. And I would say, um, you know, kind of one of the more maybe presentist readings, if, if I can use that, albeit with, you know, large asterisk, <laughs> um, is to say um, there are moral foundations to Smith's version of the system of natural liberty, or, you know, capitalism has moral foundations. Um, and there are so many variants of this, right? So we have things like, oh, you know, Smith deeply cared about the poor. Um, and this is animated by, um, you know, not only his views of sympathy, but also his moral egalitarianism, as well as his analytical egalitarianism that we see in the Wealth of Nations. Um, that Smith was deeply concerned about inequality, and you can see it in the way that he describes the kind of asymmetric sympathy that we have um, when we look at the rich and admire them versus when we look at the poor and we neglect them. So Smith, therefore, must have been very deeply concerned about economic inequality, the kind of economic inequality that we might be worried about today in the 20th and 21st century. Um, now, the, the reason why I'm kind of puzzled and intrigued and fascinated by these kinds of readings is because I think we're, we're doing very much what previous people, maybe not necessarily the Chicago school, but certainly interpreters of Smith throughout history have been doing, which is to kind of turn to Smith to understand what the moral um, and political foundations of a well-ordered commercial society look like. And I use that term commercial society very, very specifically along the ways that you talk about commercial society, which is a society whose primary mode of social organization depends on exchange, right? As opposed to barter or, you know, downward dependency and relations of, um, you know, gift and gifting and, and um, dependency, really. So one thing that I've been really attentive to is the ways in which this idea of Smith being kind of moral philosopher of capitalism, um, what that does politically. So what do I mean by this? Um, I'm actually going to just pull a couple examples from, from speeches that we see from national politicians and how they harness this idea of you know, Smith, the moral theorist of capitalism. So... Um, you know, whereas we were used to this idea that Smith is the, the father of free market economics and kind of free market supremacy, we actually start to see more um, of this narrative that, you know, not only was Smith the father of free market economics, but he was also a moral philosopher, you know. Um, 
Dave, uh, Arthur Brooks, who was the former president of the American Enterprise Institute, it's right wing think tank. He, he he said this in a in a speech in 2015. He was actually talking to President Obama at the summit on white uh, the kind of White House summit on poverty in 2015. He said, you know, capitalism is nothing than a moral than a system, and it must be predicated on the right morals. It must be. Adam Smith taught me that, you know, Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, wrote the theory of moral sentiments, you know, 17 years before. And he says it was a much more important book because it talked about what it means as a society to have the right to free enterprise, to have economics. It was true then and it's still true today. You know, this conversation with the president is so important because we're talking about the right morality towards our brothers and sisters. And built on that, that's when we can have an open discussion to get our capitalism right. So, you know, I I hear versions of that over and over again. Um, Paul Ryan, former um, Speaker of the House representative from Wisconsin, said something similar in his kind of grand plan for um, you know, a, a roadmap for America's future. And this was in the depths of the Great Recession. In 2010, he comes up with this roadmap for America's economic revival. And, you know, alongside the typical invocations of like the founding fathers and John Locke, he says, you know, Adam Smith, who the founders admired, was also a moral philosopher. So to have free enterprise is to also achieve moral greatness. Um, I know it's like very striking. And now it, let's just table the, the the question of whether these politicians are intellectually serious or not. But one thing that I, I've been thinking about is, is again, this question of like, politically speaking, what work does that do when we say Smith is a moral philosopher of capitalism? Well, well, one thing it does it, is that it tries to say that capitalism is somehow justifiable on moral grounds, right? Um, but what does that even mean, right? So, so how do we say capitalism is justified on moral grounds? Well, then you have to look to Smith and say, okay, well, markets um, generate growth and overall growth um, makes it uh, possible to alleviate poverty. So it makes the standing of the least well-off better off than any other arrangement before. Fine. I think most Smith scholars will get on board with that. But then there are all these extra questions about kind of how else do we make capitalism morally justified? Well, does it does it make us actually better people? Does it somehow cultivate virtues that we can't attain um, unless we have a society organized through commercial exchange? Then you have to turn to Smith's theory of moral sentiments and you have to try and understand to what extent is this a work where, he's tr where, where Smith is advocating for certain types of virtues or certain types of moral behavior that can only be achievable in the conditions of commercial society. Now that I think is a claim that's a little bit more dubious, right? So Smith wasn't writing the theory of moral sentiments as a text about the kinds of virtues we ought to strive for in 18th century commercial society. He was writing an 18th century science of morals, trying to explain how and why people behave morally, right? It's, it's closer to work that we might call moral psychology today, descriptive as opposed to normative. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't normative content in there. And by that, I mean, you know, of course there's something about right and wrong, but it's not so much a set of dicta as it is a set of how we come up with those dicta. So to go back to this, this idea of, um, you know, what work does it do, politically speaking, to say that Smith is a moral theorist of capitalism? Um, 
when we when we try to replace the kind of free market Smith with the moral theorist of capitalism Smith, I think we're in danger of again eliding Smith's actual study of politics and and kind of misunderstanding the purpose of why he chose to write the theory of moral sentiment in the way that he did and and also the, the wealth of nations in the way that he did. Um, for sure, we have a kind of fuller understanding and appreciation of Smith's entire corpus now because we have just much more material. We know much more about his life. Um, but I don't think that we, we should um, be too proud of the fact that we've kind of uh, been able to read Smith free of our own prejudgments <laughs> about what he did and also the use of his ideas for today. Yeah, I think that's that's got to be correct. And I should probably put my cards on the table and say that I agree, <laughs> agree wholeheartedly with you, with your assessment of um, some of the limitations of of making Smith a moral philosopher in, in some of the recent literature. And of course, one thing that I found striking is the extent to which um, certain invocations of Smith more recently track pretty closely the American culture wars um, in oh, that, yeah. that Smith is brought up. Um, to to usually is marshaled in one side of, or the other of of those culture wars, and and that really does I think speak very strongly to your point that that people go to Smith to find themselves or find or find their own contemporary anxieties yeah. and and an outlet for that, which is um, interesting to say the least. Um, one thing that, that I noticed, uh, and, and for, for listeners who want to uh, get get familiar with Glory's work, um, that she's obviously put, published excellent uh, research papers in journals like Modern Intellectual History. But if you go to her website, there's a couple of excellent um, uh, introductory pieces, uh, one in Aeon magazine from last year and another from the Washington Post, um, for also from last year. And in the Washington Post article, I, what really <laughs> stood out for me is, is, is this, this quote from... Um, from Stigler, uh, another very eminent Chicago economist, um, who who is notorious amongst Smith scholars for saying that the, the wealth of nations is a, a stupendous, stupendous palace hell. founded Built on the granite on the of self-interest. Self self interest. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Which, of yeah, course, is completely false. Uh, <laughs> Which no, no, no one believes anymore. But another thing he said that I didn't know he'd said this until I read it in your article is um, he once famously quipped that the correct, cor the correct way to read Adam Smith is the correct way to read the forthcoming issues of a professional journal. Now, on the one hand, that that's just more grist to your mill that people find the Smith they want to find. But in the in the nineteen sure. in the mid twentieth century, the Chicago economists they wanted a quote unquote scientific Smith with the politics and the morals stripped away because they thought that gave them a particularly robust, hard headed view of how to order society in promotion of freedom, which could be fed into a certain political agenda, and indeed was in the nineteen eighties. Though in practice, it obviously didn't work out the way many of them hoped. Um, but what really struck me about this quote is it mirrors exactly the thing that Bernard Williams complained about mid-20th century moral philosophers in Oxford saying you should read Plato as though the Republic was published in next month's issue of, of Mind, the famous <laughs> philosophy journal. Yeah. And that just jumped out at me to think that you've got these two disciplines, philosophy and economics, both of whom, you know, Smith has a very good claim to being a major innovator in. A major historical presence yeah. in both of these fields. And in the mid-20th century, both of these fields have now become separated from each other. You know, in Cambridge, the moral philosophy tripos um, used to be a blend of all these things. And economics was set up as a separate discipline. It was a very public statement as a separate discipline. But by the mid-20th century, you've got philosophers and economists 
basically adopting the same kind of attitude to a historical figure, um, which I think speaks really strongly both to your point about people finding the Smith that they want to find, but also in a different way to the um, a particular current in our intellectual culture of mm -hmm. attempting to scientize things you know that history doesn't matter context doesn't matter moral philosophy may not matter what matters is you know the pure light of scientific truth and there's a real irony in doing this to adam smith yeah. because his own <laughs> teachings when you sit down and read them are precisely the opposite you know, yeah. he, would, he would have said no this is absolutely mad you can't possibly read anybody like that and hope to understand them so there's something particularly interesting oh there. man yeah no that's that's such a good point paul um I don't know. I, I just, yeah, let that let that sink in for a second. Um, I want to be very clear and just say that you know, there there is a there exist people who believe that there are you know clear cut right and wrong ways to read Smith. Right, that it is absolutely wrong to rationally reconstruct you know principles from the theory of moral sentiments, whether for kind of you know scientized philosophy or you know re rationally reconstruct ideas and theories from the wealth of nations um, for, for, for economics. Um, and indeed, actually, um, Bart Wilson and Vernon Smith, a Nobel Prize winner in economic sciences, um, had a book come out just recently called Humanomics. And what's fascinating about this book, beyond the economic findings in, in behavioral economics and experimental economics, is that, you know, they, they say that the theory of moral sentiments is, in fact, the more correct version of economic behavior, that Smith has hypotheses in the theory of moral sentiments that end up having more predictive power than the version of homo economicus that we have in the wealth of nations. Now, what I find fascinating is, is the way that it attempts to correct mis supposed misunderstandings of what Smith did in economics is instead to turn to the theory of moral sentiments. But kind of what I was saying earlier about how we kind of, we'd had this tendency to kind of overcorrect, we are nevertheless, um, still searching in Smith for the things that we want to find, <laughs> given our methodological or philosophical or even political predispositions. Now, there's a separate question then to be asked about, okay, so then what is the right way to read Smith? You know, I both trained at Cambridge um, <laughs> under um, intellectual historians. And so we have this tendency to say, you know, the correct way to read Smith is to really historicize him. And that is my tendency, but I also want to recognize that for most of history, in fact, for most of Smith's subsequent afterlife, that is not how most people read him. And so then it, then it raises this question of, well, if we've never really had a historical reading of Smith, and in fact, most of the history of reading Smith is profoundly unhistorical, then... Then, then, then how do we define what, what the kind of correct reading of Smith is, especially once we recognize that we ourselves are kind of subject to methodological, philosophical, and kind of intellectual pre-commitments shaped by our own times. Um, I, I've certainly fallen for the political realist trend. <laughs> and so now Good. I go back to Smith. <laughs> so now <laughs> I go back to Smith and I say, obviously Smith is a political realist. And, you know, I'd be so keen to find out 200 years from now how people are reading our interpretations of Smith. And, and who knows? Who knows what that will look like? <laughs> uh, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a really good 
good thought perhaps for us to end on because I've, you know, I've just finished <laughs> the first draft of my book which I think uh, you know you, you said to me oh so this is the political realist Smith and I, I didn't set out to write it like that I think I've just got the right Smith you know I think finally after yeah. 250 years that you know someone has finally come up with the interpretation of course it's me um, which like <laughs> let's let's be honest chances are I've probably not got it completely right either um, but as you say you know the, these issues are complex and in a way that whatever smith we end up coming up with is in part going to be some to some degree a product of the smiths that other people have come up with and that we inevitably are reacting to um but we still we still got to try and uh and, and do our best absolutely and you know and i think that you know this this history of kind of continual contestation repeated reinvention just smith just just <laughs> speaks to smith you know really remarkable, enduring importance. Um, there aren't that many thinkers, I think, you can maybe name them on one hand, maybe two hands, who go through so many periods of historical reinvention and also have this, this kind of unrivaled political appeal. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, Smith isn't going away. He's always going to be really important. He's going to be important um, and, and However, his importance shines through in intellectual culture or in popular and political discourse more generally. Um, we'll just, we have to wait and see because it's up to his interpreters. Glory, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs>